This episode contains discussion and some description of sexual violence against minors, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Hello? Hello, this is a collect call from... Mike. An inmate at the Santa Clara County... Charges, press, zero. To refuse... This call is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using Evercom. What you're hearing is a phone call from April 2004. The call was placed from inside the Santa Clara County Prison in California from a man named Mike Danton. Danton was a professional hockey player who just days earlier had been playing for the St. Louis Blues in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And he's sounding understandably unhappy about his situation. This I'm sorry, this place where I am now sucks. If you didn't catch that, Danton is saying, this place where I am now sucks. And on the other end of that call is a man he's known since he was a boy growing up in Brampton, Ontario. His longtime mentor and agent, David Frost. He's trying to comfort Danton. The guy keeps telling me, you tell him it's not like this. He said, this is what they do to scare the fuck out of you. They want you to think this is what it's like, but it's not. And the reason why they do that is before they negotiate, right, mm -hmm. they want you to be always worried about during a negotiation that that's how you're going to have to live. Now, I know you don't want to talk to inmates, I don't blame you, but you ask anybody that's been in jail, they'll tell you it's like a condo. Once you're, once you're placed where you're going to be, you're not going to jail, you're going to counseling. And he tries to explain what's going to happen next. You will go for a bond hearing. And that's usually like a day later after they uh, formally charge you with the shit. Right. Repeat to them counseling five, six times. It's good for a lot of reasons. First of all, you send your point home. Right. Second of all, you show the remorse that you needed. Third of all, you get the fuck out of these jail cells. Yeah. Okay? And I know this sucks, Mike. And I'm not saying that you need this right now, because I don't believe you do, but this process right now is, is what's fucking us up, okay? All right, hang in with me, okay? I know it sucks. You know what I fucking eat today? I've got two pieces of bread. Okay, listen, listen. That's the kind of shit I want you to tell this guy, and I want you to talk about that right off the hop. The crime that Mike Danton has been charged with is extremely serious. Murder for hire. And while that's strange enough, what's even harder to understand is that the person the police say he was trying to kill is David Frost, the very man comforting him on the phone. I want you to know how much I care about you, how much I love you, and no matter what happens, you're going to get through this. You're still going to be a young man when this is done. Right. You're going to have a lot ahead of you. Bye. Right. The story of Mike Danton David Frost and the rest of the so-called Brampton Boys is one of the most bizarre and frankly salacious stories in all of hockey. But it's much more than that. It gets at so many of the deep problems at the core of hockey culture. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. Mike Danton's arrest and conviction for murder for hire became one of the biggest stories in the history of hockey. And part of the reason is obvious. It's rare for an NHL player to go to prison for any crime, let alone one as serious as this. And then 
there were the bizarre details. Danton admitted that he approached people twice and tried to hire them to kill someone, but he claims that he was trying to kill his father, who he has alleged was abusive to him. Despite the fact that police and prosecutors had gathered significant evidence that his target was, and always had been, his agent, David Frost. But another reason that this story became so huge was that it prompted journalists and police to look closer at David Frost, Danton's bombastic player agent. And what they found revealed some of the worst aspects of junior hockey culture. Hazing and abuse, sexual misconduct, and the lengths that families are willing to go to give their kids a chance at hockey superstardom. More after the break. Steve Simmons, a longtime sports reporter for the Toronto Sun, first heard about the Brampton boys when they were traded. Two of the players will be familiar to hockey fans. Mike Jefferson, who would later change his name to Mike Danton, and Sheldon Keefe, who today is the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Mike Jefferson and Sheldon Keefe and two other players were playing for the local junior team in Toronto. And they were a bad team. And they were the best players on a bad team. And one day, they traded all four of them to the Barry Colts. And I asked Terry Koshin, who was our junior hockey writer at the time, why did they make that trade? And he said, they want to get away from Frost. And I said, who's Frost? And he said, you don't want to know. Well, the worst thing you can say to me as a both columnist and reporter is you don't want to know. And so I decided I did want to know. So Steve started to ask around. And the more I got involved in the story, the more obsessing it became, the weirder it became. I wanted to know more and hear more and find out more. He would follow the story's numerous ins and outs over the next many years. And he would go on to write a book about the whole saga called The Lost Dream, the story of Mike Danton, David Frost, and a broken Canadian family. You know, the, the thing that always made no sense to me at all was Mike Jefferson or Mike Denton was in prison, charged with attempted or attempted to, to arrange a murder. And the first phone call he makes from prison is to the guy he tried to kill or have killed. I think that told you more about how weird all of this was than anything else. The story starts off the same way as a lot of hockey stories do, with young, promising hockey players and families who are willing to do whatever it takes in the hopes that their kids might one day make it pro. And a man named David Frost told them that he could make all of their dreams come true. David Frost was a reasonably well-known figure around the Greater Toronto Hockey League. And Mike Jefferson and Sheldon Keefe, who's now the coach of the Maple Leafs, were among the better minor hockey players in and around the Greater Toronto area. And so Dave Frost basically approached both Keefe's parents, Jefferson's parents, and some other parents and said, you know what? Essentially, if you turn your child over to me hockey-wise, I will make him into an NHL player. Imagine hearing that as a parent. 
I'm going to take your kid and I'm going to turn him into an NHL player. Well, turns out he did turn them into NHL players. Not necessarily good ones or, or important ones, but, but they did make it. But it came at an enormous price. Frost had been making a name for himself in hockey around the GTA. He was a, a hockey coach who had coached minor hockey and had coached sort of in and around the fringes of, of minor hockey and junior hockey. He was quite well known as a guy who ran hockey camps and, and was quite good at developing or getting players to play at higher levels. And he was also known as using methods that seemed extreme. His reputation as a person who was an instructor of hockey was of a pretty high level. His reputation as a human being, we can argue that one. Frost had a knack for getting banned from leagues for a variety of reasons. In one case, it was for forging player documents. In another, it was for punching a player. It's awfully hard in today's world, or even the world of 20 years ago, to get banned from that many things and that much time in that short of time frame. And it just seemed that no matter where David Frost went, he got himself in trouble and he crossed the line. And, and he didn't seem to understand boundaries or whether there were any boundaries. But Frost's ability to turn kids into better hockey players was what most people focused on. He was coaching a AAA team of 11-year-olds in Brampton when he took a number of the young boys under his wing, including Mike Danton and Sheldon Keefe. And from early on, he took increasing control over their hockey careers. The parents had no power. They had no power on the teams they were on. That was Frost's call up to through junior hockey. He took over their lives, really, is what he did. He took over their lives. The parents allowed them to do so, especially the dads in this case, because they were so consumed with what could happen in the long run. Over the next few years, wherever Frost went, so did the best boys on his team. If he got banned from one league, they'd all up and move to the next one. In 1996, an opportunity came up for David Frost. He could be an assistant coach of the Quinte Hawks, a new Tier 2 Junior A team in a tiny Ontario community near Napanee called Deseronto. And once again, he brought his Brampton boys with him. And I just want to emphasize how unusual this is. It's fairly normal for teenage boys to move across the province or even the country to play hockey but four of them all following their coach to an outlaw league? That's unheard of. The Kinte Hawks would go several months before losing a game. But it wasn't just his coaching abilities that convinced parents to put their children in the hands of this man. He was also connected to some of the most powerful people in the world of hockey. He was good friends with Bob Goodnow, an NHL agent who would go on to be the head of the NHL Players Association. Bob Goodnow and him were always close. If you'd go and see a junior hockey game on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, you would look in the stands and there would be Bob Goodnow sitting there with Dave Frost. I remember one story where Goodnow was in the parking lot of a GTHL rink and he runs into Steve Jefferson, who's father of Mike Denton. And at that point, they're still sort of unreasonable terms. And he's on the phone. Brett Hull was 
one of Goodenow's clients at the time, because Goodenow was an agent before he became the head of the Players Association. He's on the phone in a parking lot, and he just turns to, he sees Steve Jefferson walking. He says, oh, by the way, you want to say hello to Brett Hull? Well, if you think of it in, in a hockey context, Brett Hull, one of the great scorers in NHL history, is on the phone in this parking lot, talking to this dad from your hockey team, not the head of the Players Association or a former agent or whatever he happened to be at the time. It's, I got a chance to talk to Brett Hull. That makes me more important than all those other guys standing over there. So you understand how how they use their influence to get power over these kids. After having moved these teenagers to this very small community, his official role on the coaching staff didn't last long. So when the kids moved into Deseronto to play junior hockey at the age of 15 and 16, he wasn't the official head coach of the team until he became the head coach for a very short time punched one of his players, and they had to replace him in that league. And I think ever since then, he's been banned from from that league as well. But even when he was off the bench, what was clear was that Frost was still the man in charge. And that remained true even as his boys climbed through other leagues. So he went to take these kids eventually to junior hockey and where he would sit in the stands at Toronto games or Barry games or whatever team that the kids were on. And he would essentially have hand signals from the stands where he would be coaching the players while the games were going on. And they would be watching him while the games were going on. There used to be signals on the bench when he was coaching them at St. Mike's that the players would go at the next shift and fight, for example, because they'd been instructed to fight. Everything was controlled for their specific needs Never part of a team, never sort of part of a group of 20. They were their own group, and the group was Dave Frost and a small number of kids. But things only got more disconcerting. The players started to act strange. I think it started when they, when they left home. When they left home to go to Deseronto, they were the big story in this small town a junior hockey team that suddenly got the people excited about how they played and the style in which they played. And they were celebrities of sorts in this tiny little place. When they played a game, for example, say they played in in Deseronto, the parents could not talk to the kids after the game. They would be waiting by the bus and the players were instructed, do not talk to your parents, do not meet with them, do not have anything to do with them. You know, he would badmouth the parents. You know, they treated you this, they did this to you, they did that to you. And so he turned the the kids, or a lot of the kids, against their parents to a point where, you know, in the case of, of Danton, you know, where really they've had no relationship since then. The Brampton boys eventually moved on to the OHL, first playing for the St. Michael Majors, a Toronto based team. And they became infamous for starting brawls. Coaches began to whisper that these fights were being started by David Frost, giving signals from the stands. Well, a couple of weeks ago, about a week and a half ago, actually, the St. Michael's Majors were involved in a, uh, a wild brouhaha. So 10-16, the time of the penalties, Josh Bennett, unsportsmanlike conduct, and here's some unsportsmanlike conduct. Look at this! What a melee! Gloves and sticks flying all over the place. And look at Mike Jefferson. Jefferson has skated out of the penalty box, and it's like a football scrum. He's dived on top of the pile. Mike Jefferson. 
Steve Simmons has only ever spoken to David Frost a handful of times. I talked to him on the phone a number of times, but I only had I had one long sit down interview with him in 1999. The best way I could explain it was it was creepy. It was creepy because no matter what you asked, he had an answer often that didn't make any sense to me and probably to anyone else of reasonable mind listening, but seemed to make perfect sense to him. I remember asking him about control, of having control of the players. And he said, if having control means that my kids go to school and get 80% averages or whatever the number he used at the time was, then yeah, I'm guilty of control. He had told them that everyone else was the enemy. And I believe he believed the same thing, that everyone else was the enemy. And so he treated the world that way. After they were traded to the Barry Colts, Mike Danton, Sheldon Keefe, and the other Brampton boys contributed significantly on the ice. In fact, they helped lead the Barry Colts to the OHL title. But even there, they seemed to act strangely. They wouldn't listen to their coach. It was the same thing where Dave would coach from the stands, so to speak. He turned them against authority. Dave Branch, for example, is the commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League, and he had to suspend one of the guys for something, and I can't remember what it was now. But when the time came that Barry won the OHL championship, you know, it's it's tradition that the, the, the chairman presents the trophy to the captain of the winning team. Well, the captain of the winning team was Sheldon Keefe. Sheldon Keefe refused to shake hands with Dave Branch. He he took the trophy and and off he went, which at the time was quite big news. We're speaking to their actions of not remaining uh, on the blue line during the player introductions in the opening game. And we're speaking to the actions of the captain of the Colts choosing not to shake hands with all the representatives in the official party. The uh, resulting action has been a fine of $5,000 to the Barry Colts Hockey Club. From there, they go to the Memorial Cup. And there's a, an event where all of the teams are there for a, for a major luncheon and teams get up and different people get up and make speeches. And it, it's part of the Memorial Cup sort of festival of the week. And Dave Branch gets up to speak as commissioner of all of junior hockey in Canada. And as one group, the entire Barry Colts team walks out as he gets up. Like, it's like, we're not going to sit here and listen to you speak. And that's the kind of stuff that he seemed to manufacture all the time with the teams he was involved with and certainly with the players he was involved with. And the players just followed him blindly. It sounds unbelievable and it sounds remarkable, but it happened. And it's hard to believe that it happened. The Brampton boys, under the influence of David Frost, were infamous on the ice. But years later, allegations would emerge that things were even darker behind the scenes. The first stories emerged out of Deseronto, the small community where Frost first got them to move. David Frost was living in a motel in Deseronto, and the players were all living in, as you say, billet circumstances. And what happened was, is they rarely, if ever, were around their billet families. Mostly, they were in David Frost's hotel room, or motel room, whatever, motel suite, whatever you want to call it often there with girlfriends. In 2006, Canadian prosecutors charged David Frost with 12 counts of sexual exploitation. That was eventually reduced to four counts. 
three women who were teenagers at the time and had been dating the young hockey players, testified that Frost coerced them into sleeping with him alongside their boyfriends. They claimed that he controlled almost every aspect of their sexual lives. Here's what they claimed happened. Often they're under instructions as to what to do sexually or how to perform certain sexual acts and how to perform them in front of him with him watching or him instructing them as to what positions to use or whatever. At the sexual exploitation trial many years ago in Napanee, Ontario, a number of women testified about what went on in that hotel suite. It wasn't just a girlfriend and her boyfriend. It was a girlfriend and her boyfriend and maybe a third party, a girlfriend and her boyfriend and the coach watching or the coach possibly masturbating while they're having sex. And that just extended to this sort of deviant lifestyle that the players lived and that the coach lived and that anyone who came into contact to that small little group, they weren't to talk about it to anyone else. They weren't to bring it up to anyone else. But what went on in that in that motel it was not acceptable behavior for any child and any coach under any circumstance. But these weren't the only accusations of sexual assault that involved David Frost. By the summer of 2000, Mike Danton had become increasingly estranged from his family as a teenager as he grew closer to Frost, and it especially affected his relationship with his younger brother, Tommy Jefferson. His parents thought that he was losing his brother, and they didn't really understand why it was happening or how it was happening. So when there was an opportunity to have Tommy go for a weekend at Dave Frost's cottage with the boys, they thought it would be good for him to spend some time with his brother. Tom Jefferson was 13 years old at the time. And what happened was he went up there for the weekend to be, to buddy with his, around with his brother. And what they ended up doing was abusing him verbally, sexually, emotionally, in every kind of way you can think with Tom Jefferson telling the story and details. And the details were both horrific and rich at the same time. What Tom Jefferson would later allege happened to him was day after day of abuse, much of it sexualized. Tom was considerably younger than everyone else at the cottage. And he says that they not only verbally abused him, but they pushed him to drink copious amounts of alcohol and sexually violated him while he was passed out. He says that David Frost would instruct the other boys to show their genitals and even grab Tom's with his hand when he wouldn't. When I heard him speak, I will never not believe a word he said because it, it was so personal to him about how they made him dance naked on a pool table, about how they tried to involve him with sex, uh, with with teenage girls and, and the girlfriends of, of some of the players, how they made him go naked above a lake on a climbing across something and they shot pellets at him. When I went out to interview Tom Jefferson for the book and spent several hours with him at their house, I listened to him 
and was overwhelmed by everything I had heard. And driving home, which is about an hour drive from where they live to where my house is. And I listened to the interview again in the car going home and I couldn't stop crying. And I, and I couldn't stop crying for this 13-year-old boy who and now is an adult. I believed every word Tom Jefferson said to me. I believe it to this day. And to this day, it still sickens me. But none of this, the accusations from Deseronto or the cabin, would become public until after Mike Danton was charged in 2004. In the meantime, David Frost and the Brampton boys continued to move up through the hockey world. David Frost was even accredited as an NHL player agent in 2002, despite his reputation for being banned from league after league. And that happened because of his connection to Bob Goodnow, who had become the head of the NHL Players Association, the union that represents hockey's top players. Frost had also coached Goodnow's son. Bob Goodnow got Dave Frost certified as an NHL agent when he had no qualifications, by the way, to become one. And, and he wound up as Danton's agent and Sheldon Keefe's agent and you know, Ryan Barnes's agent. There's a letter in the book written by Bill Wirtz, who was then the owner of the Chicago Blackhawks. And he wrote a letter to Gary Bettman complaining about Goodenow's relationship with David Frost and calling the whole circumstance with Mike Denton the most embarrassing story in the history of the National Hockey League. In 2000, Mike Jefferson was drafted to the NHL. It was two years later that he would change his last name to Danton in an effort to distance himself from his family. He goes to the New Jersey Devils, I believe drafted by them, after being passed over either once or twice in the NHL draft. He goes there, and typical of the way he played the game, he sort of forced them to take a look at him because he was that kind of third-line, fourth-line kind of crash-and-bang guy that every team looks to find. And they had Pat Burns as the coach at the time or thereabouts, and Pat Burns loved that kind of crash-and-bang kind of player. And so there was an opportunity for Mike to, to go right, really, from, from junior to the NHL. It didn't happen that way, partly because of Frost and partly because of Mike, I think. They would like ask questions like, why am I not on the first line? Why am I not on the second line? Why am I not on power play? Why am I not doing this? Well, coaches tire of that real fast. Danton quit hockey for a short period of time in an attempt to become a Hollywood actor, but it didn't work out. He went back to, to hockey and eventually he goes to St. Louis and again, Frost is his is his guy. Frost comes and he lives at his, at his house or his condo. He doesn't get very involved with the rest of the team. He doesn't make friends. He doesn't talk to other players. He's always on the phone. This is what he became known for around the St. Louis Blues. He was always on the phone. What was he doing? He was talking to Dave all the time, before the game, after the game, sometimes during the game. It was a crazy relationship of sorts. Another one of the Brampton boys, Sheldon Keefe, was drafted by the Tampa Bay Lightning and many thought that he was good enough to be a first-round pick. He wasn't a first-round pick because nobody wanted to have a David Frost player to deal with as a first-round pick. Frost was such a pain in the arse to deal with on a daily basis to the point that he would call 
the general manager of the Tampa Bay Lightning pretending to be a reporter from Ontario, faking to ask questions about why isn't Sheldon Keefe on the power play? Why isn't Sheldon Keefe playing more? Why isn't to the point where they just kind of pushed him out of the sides? What happened? Tampa went on and won the Stanley Cup. And I think 2004 or thereabouts. And Sheldon was already in the minors and pushed away from that team because they didn't want anything to do with him. It was in 2004 that the story of David Frost and Mike Danton would become the biggest in all of sports. Danton's St. Louis Blues were in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And right then, Danton tried to hire himself a hitman. And this is where Danton's story diverges from the evidence that American prosecutors presented. Because to this day, Mike Danton says that he was trying to kill his father, even though the evidence points to him trying to kill his agent, David Frost. Mike Danton has long alleged that his father was abusive to him. It's a claim that the rest of his family denies, but Danton is adamant. He says that's why he cut off ties with his family and why he changed his name. But Danton says that he was convinced his father was coming to St. Louis to kill him, so he sought out a hitman to get him first. But during his trial, U.S. attorneys laid out a case that his target, his real target, was David Frost. Something happened in St. Louis where Mike Jefferson Dash Denton decided he has to rid himself of David Frost. He decides he's going to find a hit person, which by itself is an unbelievable story of, of, of nonsense. He's going to find a hit person, which he asks his girlfriend, who's a Yogenfru's employee in the local mall, to find him a hitman. And he's going to have Frost bumped off. Well, turns out she found him a hitman who was an undercover FBI agent who was suddenly taping every conversation that he had with Mike Denton. At the end of the day, everything was, this was like the easiest case anyone's ever made of all time. The very thought that you make a decision that you're going to rid yourself of this person who has been the most influential person really in your adult life. You're in the NHL, you're now playing, you're actually doing a reasonable job and you're planning a murder for hire. You're making calls from California to Missouri, which is across state lines, which makes it a federal crime. All this is going on as you're trying to do that and have your career and play in the playoffs and do all these things. And, and you're attempting to arrange a hit. Danton and the woman he was seeing at the time were both arrested for their attempt at murder. Steve Simmons, who had been one of the few reporters following the saga up to that point, remembers hearing the news for the first time. I was watching the national news. It may have been the lead story on either CBC or CTV News that night. I think I got phone calls almost immediately from some of my friends in the business. Have you heard about this? Have you seen this? And, and by the next day, of course, everybody's on the, on the story to a very varying degree. At the time, not many people knew who Mike Denton was. He wasn't a well-known NHL player. He was, this was his first full season, and he was a fourth liner in St. Louis. But suddenly, the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these papers that normally don't do a whole lot of hockey investigation of any kind are now fascinated by this story. And the only person who'd written anything on Frost 
in, at any length at all was the piece I'd written in 1999. And it was shortly after he was locked up in jail that Mike Danton got on the phone with David Frost. CBC's The Fifth Estate was able to acquire the calls between the two, some of which you heard at the top of the episode. In one of them, there's this exchange at the end of a conversation. Tell me you love me. I love you. Tell me you love me. You're not going to hurt me, are you? Like Frost is saying this to Den. Tell me you love me. Tell me you're not going to hurt me. Like he had just attempted to have him killed. And the guy he had attempted to have killed is telling him that I love you. Tell me you love me. And that's kind of the secret, crazy language that they spoke. This audio is from a different call, but you can hear something similar near the end of their conversation. Hey, be calm. Don't talk quickly. Talk quietly or talk calmly. You know, if, 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 you, know what I mean? you might have a breakdown. Mm-hmm. If you do, that's fine. You know, I'm not telling you to do it. Okay, I gotta go. Okay. All right. Listen, yeah. I am behind you. I know. We all are. Mike Danton eventually pled guilty to hiring a hitman to have someone killed. That man was David Frost. According to the FBI, he had specifically named Frost to two possible hitmen. He had provided a photograph of Frost to them as well. And he directed them to his apartment, where Frost had been staying. Despite all of that evidence, Danton now claims that his father, who he hadn't spoken to in years and who had no reason to be in St. Louis, was the true intended target. No one except for Danton himself knows what was going on in his head. But I asked Steve Simmons what he makes of this denial. It tells you about the layers of control that these kind of relationships can can bring on. Clearly, the control he had was what prompted Mike Danton to eventually make a decision. And I think here he was in St. Louis. His career was working. He had a future. He had a girlfriend. Like a lot of good things were happening for him. And I think he didn't want to share his life, his girlfriend, his everything, as he always has had in the past. I'm surmising here because Mike has never said it. And he is stuck to this ridiculous premise that he was trying to kill his father. And this, his father hadn't seen him or spoken to him in years, by the way, at this point. And he's telling the, the hitman, he's at my place in St. Louis. Well, who was at his place in St. Louis? Only one person, David Frost. I think he just wanted to break free with his life and didn't know how to do it. It ended up costing him his NHL career, his you know, his future in hockey, his reputation, and, you know, he spent, what, upwards of seven years in prison. All of the attention around Mike Danton's arrest and conviction brought renewed scrutiny towards David Frost. In 2006, he was arrested and charged with sexual exploitation relating to his time in Deseronto when he was coaching the Quinte Hawks. Three women alleged that Frost had abused them. Two of them had been minors at the time. The trial was by all accounts a fiasco for the prosecution. The case was passed off from prosecutor to prosecutor, leading to numerous delays. And when the trial finally took place, many of the Brampton boys testified in defense of Frost, stating that Frost never engaged in any sexual activity with the girls, and stating that group sex was simply a part of junior hockey culture. 
Frost was eventually found not guilty of the charges. Well, in a case full of details about young hockey players and allegations of group sex, a judge has found a coach not guilty of sexual exploitation. David Frost faced four charges in connection with his time as a junior hockey coach in the late 90s. It was an extremely long dissertation on the evidence before he announced his verdict, which actually took probably 90 seconds. But he spent almost three hours outlining the, the evidence presented by both sides in the case, going over in great detail and frankly in, in in salacious and even graphic detail uh, about some of the testimony around these uh, group sex parties that were held in uh, Deseronto in, in Ontario back in the mid-90s involving, allegedly involving Frost and some of his players and their girlfriends. Um, and he raised inconsistencies with all, all of the witnesses, in fact, and all the testimony he had heard and, and felt that he hadn't been convinced by almost any of them completely that they were being uh, totally um, forthright with the truth. He also felt that the, uh, the Crown in this case maybe missed some opportunities they could have could have built a better case. He, he suggested why uh, the Crown, for example, didn't present the testimony from the parents of some of the kids involved in these alleged incidents and what, what these incidents, uh, whether these things were happening, how much these ch young people had shared with the parents, why hadn't he heard, for example, from a sports psychologist about the alleged control that David Frost had over his players. After photographs of Tom Jefferson being abused during that cottage weekend with Frost and the Brampton boys were discovered and forwarded to the police, the OPP investigated the incident but eventually declined to press charges. Here's Steve Simmons again. To this day, I believe that the Ontario Provincial Police should have charged everyone involved and should have gone to court over these allegations and over the circumstances. But because it was one person's voice against a whole bunch of other people giving a different story, they didn't believe they could make the charges stick and could win in court. Frost resigned as an NHL player agent in 2007. And aside from running a hockey school in the United States for a brief period of time, he hasn't been involved in professional hockey since. And Mike Danton was released from prison in 2009. He then attended St. Mary's University in Halifax, where he played for the hockey team, helping lead them to a university championship. He went on to play pro hockey in Europe and now runs a hockey school in Nova Scotia. Here's Danton speaking to a podcast in 2012. For somebody like me who missed six years of hockey and then still could manage to come out and you know win a national championship in university and be an integral part of that team and then play professional hockey you know a year later that's, that's something that you know you got to be proud of and you got to look up to you know don't get me wrong I, I i i broke the law what i did was illegal um however i paid my dues you know like my dues have been paid i've been punished i lost a lot of money i lost the opportunity to make a lot of money i lost six years of my life from family friends um a lot of uh, a lot of things that uh, I enjoy it on a daily basis, and those are things that I'm never going to be able to get back. I think my punishment is enough. I'm not going around, you know, to bars and getting in fights. I'm not going around putting bounties on people's heads. I'm not going around getting drunk and raping girls and selling drugs and doing drugs. I've gone to university. I'm working towards a degree, to a double major degree. I'm trying to play professional hockey, but I'm getting stopped at, at, at certain junctions. I've served a family of my own. Like, what I say is, where's my break? Sheldon Keefe worked his way up coaching through the minor leagues until he was hired to be the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs in 2019. 
Ree reached out to both David Frost and Mike Danton for this story. Both of them declined to be interviewed. Frost called Simmons reporting a, quote, book-selling bias attempt, though he stated that he's still in touch with Mike Danton. Danton also responded. Here's what he had to say to us. Quote, Dude, parts of this story broke more than 20 years ago. I've been out of prison for 14 years. Surely you can find something else to talk about, as everyone has moved on from this with the exception of Steve Simmons and Tommy Jefferson. A couple topics you should discuss could include corruption in minor hockey, parental abuse towards minor hockey players, people in positions of power that use that power to their advantage for monetary gains, the countless issues with how minor hockey is governed, and the list goes on and on. Never heard of your podcast, no offense, as I don't listen to the media. However, stop recycling old trash in the hopes you'll find gold, uncover some truths, and make a change in hockey today with present issues, unquote. Danton raises an important question. Why is this still a story worth telling? And for me, it's an extreme case of an idea that's come up a few times during this season. That junior hockey is a kind of a cult. Teenagers are taken out of their homes and entrusted to adults who drill into them the singular importance of hockey. Many of them are hazed and abused. Their lives are totally dependent upon powerful men, coaches, agents, team owners, whose livelihoods are tied up with their on-ice success. David Frost exerted an abnormal power over these young boys. But compared to what happens in the rest of hockey, it's a difference of degrees, not a difference of kind. Steve Simmons believes it's important to keep telling this story, even all these years later. I went to the NHL All-Star Game this year, and I sat with a group of reporters who were significantly younger than I am. And I started telling them about the book. And these are people maybe 10 years into their jobs who are now very well known around the league and very well known for, for the quality work that they do. Not one person knew the story. They didn't know Mike Denton. They didn't know Dave Frost. They didn't know any of it. What I found out was, was amazing how many people didn't know about it or had no idea what the story was. And when I started telling people what the story was, they didn't believe me. It's hard to keep these stories relevant. And because they're horrendous, you know, people don't grasp onto that kind of thing very much. Because it's so different and unique and terrible all at the same time, I think it still matters today. I really believe that. I think parents should know about this in case anything horrendous is, is about to happen in their lives. Don't chase the dream. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. 
This episode relied on work done by Steve Simmons at the Toronto Sun, Christy Blatchford in the Globe and Mail, CBC's The Fifth Estate, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Ejiofor, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 